Please do take your Bibles now and, and turn with me to Psalm 119. Today we are covering uh, verses 57 through 64 as we continue our walk through uh, this psalm of God that focuses on the glory and the importance of God's word in the life of the child of God. So hear these words from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I've considered my ways and have turned my steps toward your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, as we approach this word, I ask that you would open my mouth. Help me to proclaim your truth in a way that your people can understand. I pray that you would open the ears and the hearts of those in this room so that they might be changed by your message, so that they might see the glory of their salvation, and so that they may be called and motivated to walk in a holy way with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Craig Bartholomew in his book, The Drama of Scripture, seeks to answer four basic questions that any system of belief has to answer when it comes to the world and life in the world. The four questions are, how did everything get here? What went wrong? How will it be made right? And what does the future hold? As he answers the first question with the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2, Bartholomew points out that man has humanity has been created in relationship to God, in relationship to other human beings, and in relationship to creation as well. God is a triune being. He exists eternally, perfectly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And those three persons have, have existed from eternity past in a perfect, loving relationship with each other. And as we are created in his image, we are created to relate as well. As I said, we relate to God, that vertical relationship. We relate to one another as humans, and we relate to creation. Now, what went wrong is that sin entered the world, and all three of those relationships were broken. We see the death of the relationship between humanity and God in Adam and Eve's hiding and the shame that they had as they realized God was going to come, confront them face to face, and see that they had violated his law. There was a death in the relationship between humanity, human relationships seen in the fact that Adam and Eve, as they are confronted by God, already show strife and blaming amongst themselves. And there's a death in the relationship between humanity and nature seen in the difficulty that Adam will have in the future and that we have even today in fulfilling that mandate, that call to subdue the earth, to have dominion, to, to, to gather our food from creation as creation fights back against sinful humanity. 
Paul picks up on these themes in his writing as he explains that the process of salvation gives us peace with God. It changes our relationship with family and friends and and points to the desperately awaited redemption of creation when Christ returns. In Christ, in salvation, there is restoration of those fundamental relationships for which we were created. And while we long for the final restoration, the restoration is begun and completed in the work of Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Our passage that we are looking at today points to these relationships as well and how the work of God, faith in God as our inheritance, as our portion, changes our relationship with God, changes our relationship with each other, and changes our relationship with creation. When God is your portion, your inheritance, your hope, how you relate to him, how you relate to others, and how you relate to creation will change. The psalmist opens up with this declaration, you are my portion, O Lord, I have promised to obey your words. That word there, portion, that the psalmist declares is what we would call a real estate word. It's a word that's used in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and also in the book of Joshua to describe the inheritance of land that each tribe, except for Levi, which we'll look at here in a few moments, the inheritance of land which each tribe could expect to receive when they entered the promised land. In fact, there's that portion in the middle of the book of Joshua where you're you're reading through Joshua and you've got all these battles, you've got all these conquests, and then all of a sudden... It slows down as Joshua says, and the boundary of this tribe will go from this city to this city, to this river, to this city, down to this city, then over to this river, and then over to this city and back up to the beginning city. It's that reminder that the portion that was promised to each tribe, the real estate, the inheritance that was promised to each tribe was given to them as they entered the promised land. But in passages like Numbers 18.20 or Deuteronomy 10 verse 9, which says that is why the Levites have no share or inheritance, and that word inheritance is portion, that is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. See, the Levites were set apart as special their portion, their inheritance was not a piece of land within the promised land. Their portion, their inheritance was God himself. They were a reminder to the Israelites, according to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the Levites were a reminder to the rest of the Israelites that yes, they had an inheritance in the land, but their true inheritance was found in God. Their true hope their true riches, their true source of protection and hope in the land was God and God alone. For the Levites, having God as their portion rather than a physical real estate pointed to the truth that everything that all of God's children have comes ultimately from God and from God alone. He provides everything that the Israelites and God's children today, the church, He provides everything that they need for life and prosperity. This was seen in the tithes and offerings that were gathered for the sustenance of the Levites. This was seen in the fact that 
the children of the Levites looked forward to God as their hope rather than a physical inheritance. And with a knowledge that the psalmist carries with him that his portion, his inheritance, his hope is in God and in God alone, he is declaring, the psalmist here is declaring, that God is everything that he will need in the future. He is everything that he needs now. And that all hope that we have is found in God and in God alone. You and I are called to see God as our portion, as our hope, as our inheritance, as we long for that future glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And when we fully, you and I fully embrace the truth that God is our portion, we will find hope in the promise of Romans 8.28, knowing that God is our portion, will work all things for good. He will see His people. He will see you safely to your internal inheritance in Christ, regardless of what life looks like today. When God is your portion, you become focused on the future promises that God has given. And as these, and this future focus will lead to a changed life today because you know that God is your God and always will be your God, God regardless of the circumstances of your life. As we move forward in the next couple of sections, we will see that the psalmist once again begins to focus on the affliction that he is suffering both in verses 65 through 72 and also 73 through 80. He focuses on affliction that he is suffering, and yet he sees goodness that God is bringing through affliction. If the things of this earth are your portion, affliction, suffering, sickness, illness in this life will bring you despair. But if God is your portion, if God is your hope, Affliction, suffering, sickness, and persecution in this life. Well, in those things, you will see the goodness that God is working in your life. And so in a declaration of assurance, the psalmist opens by saying, you are, you are my portion, O Lord. And that's what is true. And because of what is true about the relationship between God and the psalmist, the psalmist declares several things that will change in his life in relationship to God. The first thing that he declares is that he promises to be obedient. In both verse 57, he says, I have promised to obey your words. In verse 60, he says, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. And in verse 64, he says, teach me your decrees. Now, when we began this study, we talked about the repetitiveness of the psalm and how repetition is used for emphasis and for teaching. Why do you think the psalmist repeatedly declares that he will be obedient to God? Well, it's because the psalmist and you and I need constant repeated reminders that we are called to be obedient to God. When we enter God's family through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's not just that we pray a prayer and join the church, and everything's good between us and God. You and I are called to pursue a life of holiness, which involves being obedient to the law of God, not because we are earning His favor, but because He has graciously reached down, 
taken dead hearts, hearts that are dead in sin, and resurrected them, regenerated them to new life who desire to be obedient to God. Holiness, the pursuit of holiness in knowing that God is our hope, that God is our inheritance, that God is our portion, involves obedience. The second change in this relationship is found in verse 58. He says, I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. This idea of seeking God's face with the grace of God is language that should take us back to number 6, 24 through 26, that great blessing that God gives to Moses and Aaron to speak every time the people are gathered. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. The idea of God turning his face or the psalmist here seeking the face of God is the idea of God turning his favor upon his people. Do you know that in Christ, God looks upon you favorably? If we look back to Exodus chapter 32 and verse Moses asked to see the glory of God's face. And what is God's response? In verse, 30, in verse 26 of Exodus 32, God says, you cannot see my face that will lead to your utter destruction. And yet in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, God says he intentionally turns his face upon the Israelites as an act, as a sign of his favor upon them. What changed? What changed between Exodus 32 and Numbers chapter 6? What's well, the book of Leviticus? It's a sacrificial system. God can now look upon his people with favor because blood covers the sins of the people. It covers and cleanses the unholiness of his people. So God's holy gaze can be an act of favor rather than an act of judgment. Going back to the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews remind us that we have a far greater sacrifice than even the Israelites had. Our Lord and Savior died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins so that judgment may fall upon Him rather than on us. And for those who believe that He is Lord, for those who profess, those who believe that God has raised Him from, from the dead and, have, and profess with their mouth that they believe that He is Lord, we have God's favor upon us now rather than his wrath and his judgment. And so the psalmist seeks God's gracious favor by seeking the blessings of the, of the benediction in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And this isn't just a one-time seeking. He says, I have sought. And that's a, a word of desperation there. This isn't a one-time looking for God's favor and then turning back to our earthly pursuits. This is a desperate clinging and pursuit of God's favor that comes through His grace and through His grace alone. When we are gripped by the grace of the cross, we see our desperation before God. We see our need for His favor that comes to us in Jesus Christ and we cling to it in utter desperation, knowing that it is our only hope. 
So the, the psalmist's relationship to God changes in, the, in, in his pursuit of obedience, in his, in his seeking for favor from God. And it changes also through repentance. In verse 59, he says, I have considered my ways and have turned my steps toward your statutes. In our, in our New Testament reading earlier today from Luke 15, we, we learned of this young son who goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Now, typically in that time frame in first century Israel, the only way a child could get their inheritance is for the father to pass away. And so basically what the son was saying is, I wish you were dead so that I could get your stuff and live life the way I want to live. And so the father, I'm, I'm sure heartbroken, the father liquidates portions of his land, portions of his property, and he gives the son what was his. And we're told after a time, the son took off and decided to live his own life, to live according to what made him feel good, to live his own, dare I say, truth. And then he finds himself poor, destitute, watching pigs eat their slop, wishing that he could eat what the pigs were eating. Have you ever taken care of pigs? I had that privilege a couple years ago. It ain't pretty. But he said he was so desperate that he said, that is what I wish to eat. And then he considered his ways. And he realized what he had done. And he turned from his life of pursuing life on his terms. And he said, maybe, just maybe, if I go back, my dad will take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be a son anymore, but I can be a servant. And so he turned the course of his life from eating pig slop to heading back toward the favor of his father. And of course, we know the rest of the story. The father didn't make him a servant. He restored him as a son. And that is what we see here in, in verse 59, where the psalmist says, I, I have searched my heart and I have seen that I have, I have looked toward my own wants, my own desires, my own feelings, my own truth. And that has led me astray. And so as I consider my ways compared to your ways, O Lord, I will turn my feet back to your path, back to your ways in order to obey your commands. And so we see that as the psalmist embraces God as his only hope and his only portion, that it changes his relationship with God. It changes it in the pursuit of obedience. It changes it in the pursuit of God's gracious favor, and it changes it through repentance. But we also see that, that seeing God as our portion has an effect on our public life, on the way we relate to other people and to the creation around us. If we look to verse 64, we see the psalmist say, the earth is filled with your love, O Lord. That word love there is one that we've seen before. It's the unfailing love of verse 41. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever of Psalm 136. It's this idea of God's faithful keeping of his promises on behalf of his people. When we look to the fall, we see Adam told that through the sweat of your brow, you're going to fight weeds, you're going to fight bugs, you're going to fight nature in order to till the foods, to till the ground so that you can get food from that. But, but what's going to happen? The ground's still going to produce food. 
It's difficult. It's hard. But the ground still shows the faithfulness of God's promise. We read in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 as, as Noah and his family leave the ark, God tells them, not only when you see the rainbow will you see my faithfulness, but when spring follows winter and summer follows spring and fall follows summer and that cycle of the seasons continues even if it involves losing sleep on a Saturday night. As the cycle of the seasons continues, you are reminded that God is faithful, that He keeps His promise. Fast forward to Jeremiah. God takes that promise one step further and He tells Jeremiah, look, I have promised to provide a Messiah, a Savior for my people. As long as the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, I will be faithful to keep that promise. Do you consider that creation proclaims the faithful love of God toward his people? You know, we, the, the, the author of Lamentations, right, right smack in the middle of Lamentations, which is a key that in the midst of the darkness and despair of the book of Lamentations, that this is the source of all hope, the author of the book of Lamentations said, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. In the darkness of despair, as the author of Lamentations has seen absolutely everything that he holds dear destroyed, the sun comes up in the morning and he is reminded that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God's favor shines upon him. And so we look to creation not as just something to be used for food, for energy, for homes, but we look to creation as a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. But having God as our portion also changes how we deal with other people, both friend and foe. He says in verse 61, Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. We learned as we studied the book of Revelation last year that the, the world hates holy and obedient people. And the world will do everything it can. It will seek to bind you with schemes. It will seek to tempt you, to, to move you away from faithfulness to God's truth and obedience to God's law. And the psalmist here says, whatever scheme the wicked throw at me, which the bind me with ropes part there, I will not forget your law. I will hold it dear. I will hold it close. He says, in fact, I'll take it one step further and I will worship and give you thanks for your righteous laws. Think about Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They've been in Philippi preaching the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that preaching of the good news started a riot. And once the officials figured out who had started the riot... They arrested Paul and Silas, they beat them, and they chained them up in prison. And at midnight, they were singing praises to God, lifting songs of thanksgiving, lifting songs of joy, praising God for his law, for his salvation. And through that, God planted a church in Philippi. 
the jailer that night after the, the walls fell down and the doors opened, the jailer was getting ready to take his life because it would be taken from him by his superiors because the, the prisoners had escaped. After he was assured all the prisoners were there, he came to Paul and Silas and said, what must I do to be saved? And so even in the midst of the persecution, the psalmist says, I will worship you. I will remember your law. We don't suffer a whole lot of outright persecution today, but you and I do deal with people who are very angry with Christians, who seem to insult, who, who go out of their way to tell us how horrible of a people we are. How do you react to them? Do you remember God's law? Not just the Ten Commandments, but do you remember the law where, where Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? There's no caveat to that. There's, there's no love everybody except for X, Y, or Z. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Worship God even in the midst of suffering and affliction and persecution. And then he goes on to say that I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who keep, or he says there, follow, literally. It's the same word as obey in um, the opening verse there. He says, I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. When we express belief, when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we confess that God has raised him from the dead, God reaches down. He plucks us and he places us in a family. And that family is called the church. And those people become our friends. Why? Because like us, they fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, he, he defines it there for us. It's those who obey God's laws, who follow God's precepts. And we should be drawn to be companions, to be friends with other Christians. Yes, we are called to be in the world. We, we need to know people who do not believe so that we can proclaim the good news to them. But our desire should be to fellowship and to gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I remember I, I hated it at the time. I, I kind of appreciate it now. But when I was in, in junior high and high school, went to a Christian school, and the principal every year, you know, I'm pretty sure he gave the exact same talk at the first chapel of every year for those six years of my junior and senior high career. And it boiled down to this. Number one, follow all the, little, all the rules here at the Christian school and be careful who you hang around with. I didn't like it at the time. I thought I knew best about who my friends should be and who I should hang around with because, you know, I hung around with all the cool kids, of course, or at least I thought I did. And, but what he said was true. Birds of a feather flock together. Brothers and sisters in Christ should be drawn to fellowship and to hang around other brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to know where your walk is? How your walk's doing? What's your primary friend group? Who do you feel drawn to hang around with? 
I get it. Sometimes it's hard to be around fellow brothers and sisters. We're all on this walk of sanctification. None of us have gotten there. Sometimes the friendships, even among fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, get a little ugly around the edges. But we all stand before God as those who have been gathered by him, saved by him from judgment and salvation. And we should be drawn to be near each other, to fellowship with each other, to encourage and be encouraged by one another. And so as we embrace God as our hope, as our portion in this life, it changes our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the psalmist declares, you are my portion, O Lord. And he goes on to explain how it changes his relationship with God how it changes his relationship with fellow human beings and how it has changed his relationship with creation. In many ways, this is an assurance passage. Oftentimes, you and I ask ourselves the question, is this true? Am I really saved? Well, the psalmist, much like the Apostle John in 1 John, tells us, well, there's some signs that you can tell yourself that, number one, you are really saved. Number one, do you have a desire to have a better relationship with God? Do you have a desire to obey him more and more? Do you have a desire to seek his favor and his grace? And do you have a desire when you do stumble and fall to repent and to turn back to his ways? The second sign is what's your relationship to creation? Do you see God's glory and his love in creation. Verse 64 echoes the words of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where the angels flying around God's throne say, the whole earth is full of your glory, O Lord. How do you relate to creation? Do you have an appreciation for stewarding it? Or is it just something you worship or abuse? And finally, what's your attitude toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you find yourself drawn to the fellowship of the brothers and sisters in Christ? Or would you just rather hang out with the sinners in the world? As you engage in the study and love of God's word, you should find yourself drawn more and more to love God, to love his people, and to appreciate his creation. And as you grow in this love, you grow in your assurance of salvation and find greater peace in walking with him. Let us pray. To the God and Father above, we do thank you for these glorious words. We thank you that through the work of your son, we can have a changed relationship with you, a changed relationship with humanity, and a changed relationship with your creation. Lord, draw us closer to you in those areas. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing that reminds us of God's favor upon you, to your work, to your home. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.